Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at KUCI.org. That's the music of Eat Static. Yes, I'm Robert Larson, and this is our March 24th, 2011 edition of the show. 4.14 p.m. on the clock here in Irvine, California. Before we get fully underway, I have a couple of quick reminders for you. First of all, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash rglarson. Mind-altering substances have been with humans since before we were humans, but our relationships with them have been ever-changing. Some of them we revere, others we demonize. But those designations can quickly be flipped. Many drugs that authorities now war against in an almost inquisition-like manner were hailed as near panaceas only a few short decades ago. The drive to alter consciousness through chemical compounds has itself altered history, art, and the course of empires. All of this is wonderfully explored and documented in a fascinating recent book called High Society, The Central Role of Mind-Altering Drugs in History, Science, and Culture. Our guest today is author Mike Jay. Mike is a leading specialist in the study of drugs across history and cultures, the author of Artificial Paradise, Emperors of Dreams and the Atmosphere of Heaven. His critical writing on drugs has appeared in many publications, including The Guardian, The Telegraph, and the International Journal of Drug Policy. He sits on the editorial board of the addiction journal Drugs and Alcohol Today and on the board of the Transform Drug Policy Foundation. He is on the line with us from his home in England. Mike J., welcome to the show. Thanks, Robert. Hi. Yeah, uh, thank you for taking the time to be with us at what is a rather late hour there in England. And uh, this is really fascinating stuff, so I'm glad to be able to talk to you about it today. Uh, First of all, I have to say that this book, as well as being a fascinating read, is a delight just to look at. Dozens and dozens of remarkable photos and illustrations. Uh, That must have been an adventure, just bringing those images together. Yeah, it was. I mean, that's something that I've always thought was lacking. You know, there isn't really a uh, kind of a good visual introduction to the subject because, you know, images say so much. When you see, you know, we kind of have these sort of images in our head about what drugs are, you know, whether good or bad or legal or illegal. But once you see them, um, you know, and people using them in different contexts and through history, it really kind of brings the subject to life. So I was doing um, uh, an exhibition, uh, curating an exhibition here in in London over the winter and getting a lot of these objects uh, and items together. So I drew on that for the book, yeah. Yeah, some of these things you've heard about, these kind of um, strange uh, drugs that we now think of as street drugs, but at one time were just you could could be found in drugstores and to, to see those images of, of the the bottles and the uh, and old drugstores and it, quite fascinating as you say really brought it to life and uh, and just the images of uh people in other uh, cultures in uh, mm-hmm. the uh the uh, southern hemisphere in some of these places uh, 
partaking in these often uh, plant uh, substances that are really not too well known in uh, uh, Europe and America. So I really loved looking at those. And, uh, yeah, we, we can get into that a bit as we go along here. So, uh, first of all, sure. tell us a, a little uh, about your background studying drugs and, and how that led into this book. Yeah, um, that's it. I guess that I started writing about drugs in the sort of mid-90s as a journalist, um, which was kind of another world. It's hard to uh, think back now, but, you know, I, I kind of started writing about drugs because nobody else was, and people were very nervous about it. You know, everybody was like, you know, are you sure you want to do that? You know, that you're going to get arrested, your name's going to be on some kind of police list, you know. Um, and um, I kind of figured that, uh, you know, this was like a huge subject that nobody ever talked about and um, people were very poorly informed about. So I started writing about it. And then, um, yeah, one of the things that then you realize is yeah, we kind of have this assumption that drugs are kind of something to do with the 1960s and that's kind of where they appeared from. Uh, but then they've just got this uh, huge, fascinating history. You know, you go back, um, as you were saying, you know, you go back a century and, um, you know, you could go into any pharmacy and buy um, heroin and cocaine and, um, you know, marijuana and morphine. And, uh, you know, so, uh, and this was a pretty untilled field at that time. Um, I guess his sort of mainstream academic historians didn't really look at it because it was a little bit of a kind of um, bit too sort of funky kind of um, subject. You know, you weren't going to get a lot of kudos for looking at it. Um, so it was just a, a great, great sort of mine of um, stories in social history. Yeah, yeah we had uh, a couple of years ago uh, Rick Strassman, Dr. Rick Strassman on oh, the yeah, show, yeah. who has done this study with DMT and, and, and what he went through to get the government okay to do this study and, and how he had to just be very uh, close to the chest about who he was and um and not making really open his associations with people who might be considered unsavory and to just make the government feel very comfortable that he was going to do this in a in quite professional manner and, and and he did but it it was a uh, wow you know it's just there there are these uh notions that people yeah. have about these I things guess, you know like um a hundred years ago, they say, kind of the 1890s, that was the, that was the um, point at which mescaline was discovered, you know, the first real sort of major psychedelic. And if you look at the discovery of that, that's um, basically there's an anthropologist who's, um, you know, spending time with the Sioux Indians, and he takes it with them, and he kind of writes about his mescaline experiences, and um, then this, uh, you know, kind of leading psychiatrist, Weir Mitchell, you know, probably the most famous psychiatrist in America at that point, thinks, well, that sounds interesting, and he gets kind of a bunch of peyote buttons and eats them, and he writes up his report of his mescaline experience, you know, in the sort of academic journal, and then, you know, that was, you know, that was the way it used to go, because, um, you know, scientists, uh, you know, right from the beginning of this, it was obvious that um, if you were talking about mind-altering drugs, right, you know, things that change consciousness and you wanted to figure out what they did, it was obvious you had, you had to take them yourself, you know, and that was <laughs> the way that science proceeded, you know, until, um, you know, until recent times. Yeah, yeah, and uh, the thing is so interesting to me about uh, these, these psychedelic drugs uh, that... M 
originally these were all from plants, uh, things you mentioned mm-hmm. like peyote and uh, psilocybin mushrooms and uh, the ayahuasca that is done down in South America. In, in, uh, before Europeans ventured to the New World, this kind of thing was uh, almost unheard of in, in, uh, in Europe, a, a, a plant that could put you into this uh, sort of altered reality. It, it, I mean, isn't that a bizarre concept? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very strange. And um, in a way, it's just kind of determined by the um, botany. You know, there is no kind of, there are no DMT-containing plants in Europe. You know, there is no um, kind of, um, you know, sort of mescaline um cacti and stuff there were probably you know there are mushrooms but it's not clear kind of how well that was understood you know really what um you know europe grew up with was um alcohol and opium you know and the the narcotics you know that's uh, you know those that's and even stimulants we didn't really have until um you know uh with the uh, you know Tobacco and um, tea and coffee and all these things kind of came, you know, quite late into European culture. So, uh, you know, we just didn't have that kind of spectrum, you know. So for a long time, if you go back into European history, kind of, you know, before the Middle Ages, then, um, you know, all we really have is, um, you know, these kind of sedatives like sort of, you know, your basic poppy juice and alcohol. Yeah, and the and you talk about in the book also that you know, even sugar, which is can be thought of as a drug, is that that was not even something that was found in, in Europe for sweeteners. You just had honey and some sort of fruit juices, and so when this became uh, known to European explorers and brought back and this concentrated sweetener, I mean, it became a huge thing and and had a profound effect on on everything trade and empires is this not correct absolutely and it's uh you know and the the appetite for it you know because um sugar is very habit forming if you don't have sugar in your diet you don't need it once it starts to come in you kind of need it and you kind of want more so if you just look at the kind of you know this is kind of a global story and you can see where it um where it starts, you know, really in the Caribbean in the 18th century. It's like this huge, great wave, kind of wave of sugar that's kind of like now pretty much engulfed the world. There's almost no culture now where, you know, that doesn't have kind of like a whole lot of sugar <laughs> yeah, um, going on. You know, I mean, what I, I think, it, you know, what we had um, in Europe before that, you know, as you say, we didn't have these drugs, but we did. We did have spices. And, um, you know, that was a great kind of... Um, consumer craze of the middle ages these are these exotic things you know like cloves and nutmeg and so on that came from people didn't quite understand where they came from you know they seemed to come from paradise you know because mm-hmm. people knew that the, the garden of eden was kind of over in the east somewhere and these and nobody could imagine um paradise at that time without the smell of all these spices that was where it was so in a way these kind of fabulous sort of um, exotic um, things from the far side of the world you know that was the you know that was the kind of slot that was there before drugs came along right and you point out in the book that it was the uh, the, the desire for the uh, spices that led to the discovery of the uh, new world and all of this other uh, stuff when then the drugs became right, discovered yeah, as well exactly. and 
Yeah, yeah, f- fascinating. And, and the book, again, uh, to you listening out there, High Society, The Central Role of Mind-Altering Drugs in History, Science, and Culture. The author, Mike Jay, our guest today on the line from England. And uh, so let's talk a little bit about this this thing that people generally have an idea of what uh, is a drug of medical value and what is a recreational drug or a drug of abuse. In reality, though, the way these categories are designated often seems arbitrary and not necessarily based on science, and the lines between these categories are often blurry. Why is the perception often at odds with reality? Does it have to do with marketing and politics? How did this all come about? I guess it originally comes about, um, you know, sort of, through the growth of the medical profession, you know, because if you go back a little while, um, I mean, right there, you know, we kind of, you know, we use this word recreational for drugs. That's kind of like, which that seems to me to like beg a lot of questions, like who says it's recreational? You know, could it be kind of spiritual or could it be, you know, um, ritual or, you know, there's many other things it could be. But recreational kind of means non-medical because as soon as you had... Um, the idea that there was a kind of medical orthodoxy and some drugs were okay and some drugs weren't, then you had kind of, you know, use, medical use of these drugs was okay, but anything that wasn't medical was abuse, you know, and then you kind of, then people kind of started to say, well, um, abuse, that's kind of very judgmental, let's call it recreational, you know, and then other people come along and recreate, say recreational, that doesn't sound serious enough, let's kind of invent a new word like entheogenic or something. Um, but it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's exa- exactly as you say. I mean, any line drawn between these is kind of artificial um, because, uh, you know, why do people take drugs? And I think, you know, m- marijuana, sort of cocaine, um, opiates, you know, all these drugs, they all started off as medicines. And, um, you know, people still kind of, there's still a kind of, you know, when people take them, kind of um, illicitly, you know, or should we say, or recreationally. Um, there's, you know, there's often a kind of medical component there. People are kind of self-medicating in some way. But in another way, like the kind of spices we were talking about earlier, these things are a kind of luxury. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something that you do if you've got a little bit of money left over that doesn't have to go on necessities. And if you've got a little bit of time to have to yourself, you know, then you have, you know, you, you sit down, you have your cigarette or you, you know, go out on a, Friday or Saturday night and you have your ecstasy pill, you know, so I think these substances kind of have one foot in the world of medicine and another foot in the world of luxury. Yeah, and I think you you take something like, uh, uh, well, marijuana, which is uh, primarily used as <laughs> recreationally, as we say, but yeah. uh, it it is known to have a medical value and uh, that there are scientific studies and papers written on how it can uh, treat certain medical conditions. And in fact, here in California, we, um, we passed a... Uh, the, the people actually voted to allow medical marijuana to be legal for people to have it for certain medical uses if they got a prescription mm-hmm. from uh, a doctor. However, the federal government, you know, this is our state government here in California, but the federal government is not too keen on that, and they kind of cause problems, and there, there's a mm-hmm. whole thing of where you can, the state government saying it's okay for you to use and for you to sell it to certain people, and then the, the feds come in sometime and try to shut you down. So it's, uh, 
It, it's very complicated and uh, <laughs> a lot of politics yeah, involved say, in it. You know, if you go back to the time when um, marijuana, you know, in the 19th century when it was available in pharmacies, and you look at what people used it for, and everybody goes, yeah, it's an antispasmodic, it's good as a sort of... Um, you know, for, as a muscle relaxant, it's good for cramps, it's good for um, insomnia, it's good for apathy. You know, all the stuff that we kind of know now, that was well known 100, 150 years ago. You know, so all these obstacles that are put in the way of it, are, and you know, are much more political than scientific in that sense. You know, these, uh, you, know, the, 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 you know, the medical benefits of marijuana were established long before there were marijuana laws. Yeah, and, and many of the drugs that are... Uh, approved uh, that you can get a prescription for. I, uh, one that comes to mind is a OxyContin. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a huge problem of uh, abuse with that, and we, we have uh, many people who get it originally from their doctor, but then enjoy it so much that they want, keep wanting more, and then they start buying it on on the streets. And uh, so that is a. Uh, uh, it goes both ways. The officially approved drugs then become drugs of abuse. The ones that are thought of as drugs of abuse often are uh, have real medical uh, uses and can be very yeah, helpful. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, um, people are always looking for um, an opiate that's non-addictive, mm-hmm. you know, but um, any drug that works, you know, is going to be addictive in that sense. You know, if you're in pain for whatever reason, you know, physical pain or mental pain, and a drug is, you know, effective at taking that away, you're going to want to stay on that drug, right? Mm-hmm. So um, heroin is a great example. I mean, heroin was um, originally an over-the-counter cough medicine, you know, and the uh, heroin was its brand name. That was kind of biopharmaceuticals for people who produced aspirin. It was kind of an X after aspirin was heroin, you know, and um, the, um, you know, it, this was kind of, um, yeah, basically just a kind of cough remedy, which was very good for, of course, all opiates kind of suppress coughs. It's one of the things they do. But it was also specifically at that point um, marketed um, as a cure for opium addiction because it was thought to be kind of less addictive. <laughs> yeah. So heroin in its day was, you know, the OxyContin. That was the kind of... Uh, new pharmaceutical version that was going to be like the non-addictive substitute. Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about these uh, opiate uh, products what one could buy at the drugstore uh, about a hundred years ago and uh, these uh, things that uh, doctors were giving to people for all kinds of reasons and uh, I think uh, laudanum falls into that category? Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that was the you know, for for a long time, you know, sort of through the um, sort of seventeenth, uh, eighteenth, nineteenth century, um, opium was kind of the um, it was your sort of basic go-to um, painkiller. You know, it was the one that most families would have at home in the bathroom cabinet. You know, because this was the days. You know, there was no aspirin, there was no paracetamol. Um, so anything that was kind of um, needed a painkiller, anything to do with aches and pains, rheumatism, arthritis, anything like that, opium was your best solution. Of course, uh, another thing that opium does, um, you know, is it's, uh, it, it kind of constipates you. So, you know, in a, a time when there's lots of, um, you know, bad diseases around like cholera and dysentery, um, you know, it's also very, very uh, effective, you know, if you get a bad bout of one of those. Mm-hmm. So... Um, 
opium was pretty much the sort of, uh, you know, the, the best established uh, medicine. It was certainly the most effective. And that was normally made available, yeah, in the form of laudanum, which was a kind of tincture of um, opium in alcohol, this kind of um, little um, sort of, you know, a, a little bottle, a little jar of that, and you'd kind of, you know, um, shake out little drops of it, you know, like you might with kind of, you know, echinacea or something today, you know, and that would be the main form that you'd take your painkiller in. Then what happened kind of um, in the second half of the 19th century was um, uh, morphine came along, which was a lot stronger and a lot cleaner, um, and doctors really preferred that because uh, the trouble with all these laudanums and these opium tinctures, you never knew quite what was in them. Uh, you know, they didn't have to have ingredients listed on them, and quite often they'd have a lot more opium in than they said they would, you know, just so that, to make sure that people would feel good when they <laughs> took it. And a lot of these were aimed at children as well. There are all these brands. Those great. You can sort of find a lot of the sort of uh, marketing images on the net uh, called things like Infant Quietener and stuff, and it's all like... Uh, you know, if you're kind of if your kids are screaming, just hey, give them some opium. You know, <laughs> it'll work. Um, it'll quiet them down. Great Victorian sort of things where, um, uh, you know, these are all in kind of really sickly sweet kind of cherry menthol flavors. You know, so they're kind of like kind of kids sweets, but also like really powerful opiates. So that was kind of in a way when morphine and heroin came along. You know, they were these were clean, they were pure, they were of a fixed dose, you know, and they kind of kicked the old opium preparations out, but they were, you know, much more potent. Yeah, these earlier preparations like the laudanum, they often had uh, different herbs mixed in with them, and there, there was var variations on them, and is that... Yeah, that's right. They often had um, cloves and cinnamon, and um, sometimes the, uh, um, the alcohol was like a kind of wine, like a sweet wine. Um, and there were, um, well, there's a famous one um, here, and I think you had it in the States too, called Chlorodyne, um, Collis Brown's Chlorodyne. And that had, uh, there are various versions of that, but one of them had um, kind of um, uh, cannabis extract in and um, opium and um, chloroform and ether. So here in America, we love our... Uh Western movies or cowboy movies of the, often that time period, the late 1800s, and mm -hmm. uh, the and occasionally the, the, the references to this come up in these kinds of movies, and somebody has a sort of medical issue, and they go to the town doctor, and they they give them some kind of tincture, and, and often probably what that would be, and it is sometimes is indicated in the movie, is something like laudanum, right? That's right, and also at that time, commonly, after, um, you know, what were also come along was morphine and um, the um, hypodermic needle. Um, so that really got established in America during the Civil War. Uh, so then, after that, quite often, if you go and see the doctor, you get, um, you know, you get morphine in this little sterile kind of vial and um, a needle to inject it with, and quite often the doctor would just kind of you know, show the patient how to do it and then kind of just give them the needle and the bottle and um, let them get on with it. So, uh, yeah, this is handled really well in um, uh, Deadwood, that um, HBO um, series mm -hmm. um, that uh, ran a few years ago, had a, you know, a, had a, um, a great Doctor character played by Brad Dourif kind of dealing with that and, um, you know, various different um, characters that kind of handled it, um, handled it really well, the kind of decisions that, uh, particularly as you say, in this kind of 
in these sort of western frontier towns, you know, these are not kind of cities where you have um, all kinds of kind of conveniences and civilized life. This is pretty rough and ready, you know, and, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, serious pain and illness to medicate, um, you know, and how that works between doctor and patient is really fascinating. Right, and the sort of notion of, of addiction, w w there was some understanding of it, but not to the degree that we have now. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's a funny thing is that, uh, you know, opium's been with us since, you know, kind of the, um, you know, ancient Greeks. And um, you don't really hear a whole lot about addiction until quite recently. I mean, that's because it was such a useful medicine. It was like, um, oh, yeah, and if you take it all the time, then your dose has to go up. But that was kind of regarded as a side effect. <laughs> yeah. Historically, the real problem with um, opium and opiates is all, has not been addiction. It's been overdose um, because you only have to take, um, you know, four or five times the dose you're supposed to take with opiates. And, you're, you know, you're in a lot of trouble, you know, potentially fatal trouble. So that makes it a dangerous medicine to have around. So... You know, if it's around all the time and doctors can only say one thing, it's like, hey, be really careful with the dose. Don't take too much, you know. Yeah, well, um, we... So, so then, the, they, then the whole addiction thing was, you know, it was kind of a, you know, that was like a minor side effect for something that was a medicine that was too useful to do without. So it was only, um, yeah, the whole idea of a drug addict doesn't really kind of um, appear until, um, you know, the, uh, the 19th century again. Yeah, and um, you have some... That's true also of the alcoholic, you know. I mean, before that period, you know, yeah, some people drank too much, but there wasn't such a thing as an alcoholic. It wasn't like a disease. You know, that's, this is all kind of... These are all ideas that are also quite recent. This is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. Robert Larson here speaking with Mike Jay, and we're discussing his book, High Society, The Central Role of Mind-Altering Drugs in History, Science, and Culture. I want to mention again just how wonderful all of the uh, images are in this book, some great uh, graphics and illustrations and photos and um, some touching on definitely the things we were just m mentioning, the... Uh, the notion of addiction, you, you have some uh, images in there showing uh, people, uh, uh, the, I don't, things from the uh, late 1800s of people shooting up and kind of where this, the drug fiend, yeah. the notion of the drug um, fiend. Yeah, that's right. They kind of um, got some of the very, very first images of addicts, and you can see just how um, terrifying that was. I mean, it's still kind of one of the scariest, most taboo images in our culture, right? You know, this kind of self-injecting addict. Uh, and it must have been so scary, you know, when the hypodermic needle was a totally new thing, almost a kind of like science fictional device. Um, there's an image in the book of somebody um, who's kind of been injecting and has just covered their whole body with um, sores. Um, what, what, what was kind of interesting to find out was that that was... Um, the character who did that was a male nurse. Mm -hmm. So, um, and this is one of the curious stories about the early addicts, is actually an enormous number of them were doctors. You know, doctors, dentists, um, nurses, doctors' wives. These are the people who had kind of um, needles around and who had um, morphine around. And uh, quite often they'd go out on their rounds, you know, with their, sort of, with, with their needle in their bottle and... Uh, you know, they'd come back at the end of their rounds and the bottle would be empty, you know, and uh, it was almost like a disease um, or spread by doctors. 
uh, which I think partly was why kind of the medical profession was so kind of um, shocked by it and, uh, you know, it became such a kind of big deal in medicine, the idea of addiction when it appeared. Yeah, and that issue is not even uh, completely gone today. We still have a problem in some areas of uh, doctors and nurses uh, abusing drugs because there's such easy access to it. Yep, dentists and anesthetists, you know, um, particularly, yeah. No, that's right. It's not talked about a lot, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's still a big issue. Yes, uh, let's uh, move away from the opiates uh, for a moment and uh, talk about uh, the... Uh, the the cocaine and the coca plant it, it's it's almost has the status of uh, urban legend but it's definitely true that coca cola originally had uh, coca extract or cocaine in it can you talk about that and in the other cocaine containing products of that era sure yeah i mean that's definitely true and um you know it still has to um it still has um coca extract in it um without the cocaine in denatured but i believe according to your pure food and drug act it has to if it's called coca-cola it has to have coca in and it has to have cola in you know it couldn't use the name unless it did that wow um so the way that this started out um it started out in um atlanta with a um a a company called pemberton's uh, who were then bought out by coca-cola but this was just at the time when the temperance movement was really um taking off and um so there was a market for uh drinks that didn't have alcohol in so the idea of um coca-cola originally was that this was this was kind of a you know clean healthy alternative to alcohol and it would kind of give you a bit of pep and a bit of energy um and it would be um you know the temperance drink that's how it was originally advertised and, you know, that's kind of what it still is, you know, because if you go to a bar and you don't want to drink alcohol, you know, what do you have, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, and I know, you know Coca-Cola is still uh, a refreshing drink It's on a hot day or something, you know, a cold Coca-Cola, and it, it does ha- that's right. have... That's I mean, it's the caffeine that's giving you that, uh, you know, um, that hit now and not the, uh, not the cocaine. Yeah, so I can imagine how it uh, must have been uh, a little more of a pick-me-up uh, then and uh, quite a, uh, um, giving you quite a yeah, good feeling. Yeah, I mean, there were an incredible number of, um, I mean, cocaine hadn't really, um, it was only really, it was only synthesized in kind of 1860, and it was only about 18, in the 1880s that you really started to get it as a kind of, uh, as, as a product in all kinds of different forms, you know, pastels and lozenges as well as the Coca-Cola, and you could just kind of go and buy the cocaine solution and the needle, you know, if you wanted to. Um, it was, because I mean, when it came along, there weren't, apart from coffee, there weren't really any stimulants, you know, there's no such thing as amphetamines or anything like that. And this was a time of kind of, you know, very, very rapid uh, industrialization, you know, people working very hard, a lot of drudge jobs. And, um, you know, a lot of people needed a sort of pick-me-up or something kind of like this to um, get them through the day. So, yeah, you could, um, at that point, um, you know, either go into a kind of, you know, a sort of uh, drugstore and buy a soda with cocaine in, or you could um, buy any number of different um, sort of pastels and, um, you know, sort of things that you could um, suck or chew with cocaine in, you know, um, kind of wine also sort of steeped, you know, in, in, in coca leaves. And, um, 
Yeah, it was, uh, you know, so that's why, you know, and there's lots of remnants from that, like, um, you know, Sherlock Holmes, um, you mm-hmm. know, the great detective, he's kind of, um, you know, when we sort of first meet him in the first uh, of Conan Doyle's novels, The Sign of Four, you know, he's just uh, injecting himself with cocaine, you know, that's kind of the opening scene. Um, and he's just saying, ah, oh, you know, life is just too boring without, you know, um, you know, my mind's just kind of uh, moving too fast and life is too dull. So, um, you know, that's the reason why I solve crimes, you know, because uh, it just keeps me off the cocaine, really. It gives me something else to think about, you know. So uh, it was the kind of, um, you know, it was a substance that was, uh, you know, widely represented in kind of, you know, sort of literature and um, culture and music at the time, as well as being, a, you know, available everywhere. Yeah, he didn't, in, in the Sherlock Holmes uh, novels, he didn't just pull that out of uh, thin air. This was something that was uh, going on. And, and you also mentioned, of course, Sigmund Freud, who used cocaine and uh, had uh, some shyness problems, and that helped him with that, and had access to it, and uh, very interesting stuff. And so you have some images as well of, of these, uh, the coca wines that I, I think these yeah. probably preceded Coca-Cola. And, uh, yeah, that's right. The, um, uh, there was one kind of real king of the coca wines, an Italian guy called Mariani, Angelo Mariani, and he, uh, um, he was a great sort of uh, self-publicist and promoter of his coca wine. And uh, he used to just kind of send bottles to famous people and get them to uh, you know, write testimonials and saying how great it was. So he's got those books and books of those that he kind of published that we've still got and that's kind of um so american presidents and um popes and kind of pretty much everybody from that time you know sort of literary figures like hg wells and, and ibsen and you know they, you know there's books and books full of them going oh this uh, this coca wine is so great <laughs> wow interesting times uh this is out the rabbit hole kuci in irvine robert larson here speaking with mike J, and we're talking about his book high society the central role of mind-altering drugs in history science and culture uh, a high i knew very little about but became intrigued by through your book is beetle uh i think that's the mm. pronunciation w- what is that and what uh, kind where where does that originate, and what kind of effect does it have? Yeah, I mean, Beatles, until recently, it was probably kind of, there were more people on the world chewing Beatles than there were um, smoking marijuana. It's probably still about 100 million people who do it quite regularly. And um, it's uh, it's kind of a South Asian thing, really. So India and all the way kind of down through kind of Thailand to Indonesia, uh, and um, actually Madagascar as well, you know, all around, all around that area. And uh, it's, um, it's, a, it's, it's something that you chew. So in that sense, it's a bit like kind of coca leaf in South America or cat in Yemen. Uh, and um, it's a leaf um, which you wrap around um, a, a nut from a different plant and you put some kind of lime on it, some alkaline lime to catalyze out the alkaloids. And um, how to describe it? It's kind of, um, uh, in some ways, it's a, it's a stimulant, like kind of caffeine or something, so people will sit around and have a chew. It's a kind of social thing. It's also kind of a little bit chemically like nicotine, so it's kind of relaxing and stimulant at the same time. So um, I guess if you wanted to put it in terms of our culture, it would be kind of like um, drinking a coffee and smoking a cigarette at the same time. Yeah, yeah, and it's, uh, I, I think, 
drugs that become really popular often have a a uh, a uh, stimulant effect as well as the like you said the tobacco a, a sort of relaxing effect or a stimulant and a mild euphoria and that's right and they kind of just generally give you control of your mood i mean i think um you know sort of caffeine and nicotine both do that if you kind of decide you want to you know focus on something you go like okay i'll have a cup of coffee or i'll have a cigarette and i'll get stuck into this or then kind of if you want to kick back and go oh that's enough of that i'll have a I'll, you know I'll relax you know you can have your sort of cup of tea or you, it kind of works that way it just puts you in the driving seat in terms of being able to determine which way your mood is going and uh, yeah beetle is kind of like that beetle fits very very elegantly into asian cultures it's a very nice um social thing you know you kind of sit down with other people and you wrap up your sort of little beetle leaves and have a chew it's a thing that um you know, kind of like older women or people who are sort of working in the market can do. You can just kind of, you know, on a small level, you can have like a little business kind of selling it. And also if you're working, you know, and you've got a few, a little bit of spare change and you've got a you know, 20 minute break, you can kind of buy a beetle quid and kind of put it and then kind of chew it. You know, it's very sort of, you know, it, it fits very nicely into the cultural swing of things. And it basically just buys like a little bit of, a little bit of luxury, a little bit of me time, as we might say. And it's it's completely legal in most of these South Asian countries. It's completely legal in these um, South Asian countries. Uh, it's pretty much legal everywhere. Um, it's uh, sort of like coffee. You know, I mean, a lot of these kind of drugs that are used in some sort of cultures, we don't quite know what to do with them. I mean, if you look at kind of cat, you know, this um, leaf that's chewed in sort of um, East Africa, for example. So here in Britain, that's a vegetable, you know, you can bring it in. Um, over here, over um, with you, um, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's um, classified as a scheduled drug, you know, and yeah. um, you can sort of buy it on the black market in um, Somali communities there. Whereas um, a kind of drink like kava from the Pacific is the other way around. You know, that's, uh, you have kava bars there and, uh, you know, kind of, legal carver and you can get it in health food stores over here in europe it's kind of banned by sort of european legislation so uh i kind of find these interesting to look at these um little sort of local drugs that haven't been really assimilated into the global culture because you know they're kind of hard for us to sort into our kind of normal categories of good and bad and they make us look at the whole subject again yeah, I know. That's, that's totally fascinating, and it's just great how you get into all of that in this book. And uh, if I, we could go back for just a little bit here, we don't have too much time left to talk a little bit about um, psychedelic uh, plants, yeah. because um, it's, this has uh, always intrigued me since I've become aware of it, is that uh, the these kinds of things were, were not known in Europe. The Spanish conquistadors... Uh, encountered some of this saw the mm -hmm. indigenous people using the uh, the mushrooms or uh, possibly the ayahuasca in south america and and, and maybe the peyote in in mexico mm -hmm. and it, it this was sort of driven underground they the uh, indians the indigenous people were kind of told this was wrong and bad and evil and they were trying to catholicize these people and and then because of that it seems that it was just completely lost on on the uh western uh, authorities or just the population in general and it was only kind of like rediscovered by um westerners uh, like a hundred years ago or less is that kind of the case 
Definitely, yeah. I mean, certainly the uh, the magic mushrooms in Mexico, you know, famously they were thought, you know, to have disappeared, uh, you know, because there were lots of Spanish account, accounts of them, you know, lots of um, different sort of Spanish monks and conquistadors wrote about um, the use of mushrooms, the use of peyote cactus, oliluqui, you know, the morning glory and all kinds of other stuff. The only one that, uh, you know, uh, Westerners really got into and brought back was tobacco um and so yeah uh, because then this, this carried on kind of far away from western eyes so it was thought that um you know this use of mushrooms was something that had died out centuries ago and then it was yeah in the 1950s only that um you know gordon wasson went to, um a, a sort of independent researcher went down and uh, um found himself at mushroom ceremony and wrote it up in you know life magazine and uh, you know that was kind of the beginning of the sort of modern mushroom revival i guess you'd call it Mm -hmm. and it just to me it's just so these uh we can get into a discussion of whether it's something good or something bad but the the fact is that the experiences that people have with these substances are so powerful you know it's just it's it's really bizarre that this was kind of the lid was was kept on this for for so long and uh you know yeah. just yeah no that's right no it's kind of you know as i was sort of saying at the top of the program you know when um when um peyote was first discovered that was only really kind of um you know discovered when it was noticed that uh, the sioux people you know were um, were doing it you know in the sort of 1880s 1890s around that time and um you know, these, um, it was, you know, there weren't any kind of um, psychedelics like that known. It was extraordinary to people. Uh, people couldn't figure out what it was in this um, in this cactus that was doing it. They kind of thought the only, it was because it was kind of a stimulant. If you took it, it kept you awake for hours. So mm-hmm. they were thinking, well, maybe there's some cocaine in it, but then also it kind of produces hallucinations. So maybe there's like some marijuana in it as well. You know, they kind of had no real um r- real model for it you know and then when these um you know when these amazing sort of psychedelic um compounds and molecules were discovered you know they were completely unexpected yeah uh and there's so much more about all we're talking about here in, in your book mike I, I wish we had more time to go into it but uh we're just about out here in uh, the book again high society the central role of mind-altering drugs in history science and culture mike jay the author uh, mike is there one uh, last thing you'd like to leave us with or something that you'd kind of sort of like to make sure people take away from your book um yeah i mean i guess um it's it's where we came in and i think you know there's, i mean drugs is this word that kind of has all sorts of mostly negative connotations now well there's kind of two really I mean, we, you know, we still talk about a drugstore, you know, where drugs just mean medicines, but drugs in the sense we've been talking about, you know, kind of, um, you know, this is kind of a box that we put certain substances into, and it's just what's so interesting is if you step back and, you know, you look across different cultures around the world and you look back through history, um, you kind of see that, um, you know, when we say, when we talk about drugs, we're really talking about kind of other people's drugs, because we're <laughs> our own drugs, right, like... Um, <laughs> alcohol and caffeine we don't think of them as drugs either they can become transparent to us but of course it wasn't so long ago as we know that alcohol was illegal you know and um you know as we've been hearing you know that um that cocaine and marijuana were legal you know so um it's just so interesting to um kind of 
take off the, uh, you know, the, the usual kind of lenses that we look at this through and, um, you know, consider the subject more widely. Yes. Well, okay. Well, Mike Jade, thanks so much for spending the time with us. Um, it's been fascinating. And oh, it's a real pleasure, Robert. Thank you. Okay. Again, the book High Society, The Central Role of Mind-Altering Drugs in History, Science, and Culture. Uh, okay. I know it's late there, so get some sleep. Thanks again for being on the show. See you then. Okay. Bye. All right. Yes. And uh, again, the title, High Society, The Central Role of Mind-Altering Drugs in History, Science, and Culture. That about does it here for Out the Rabbit Hole. Remember, again, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. You want to stay tuned to KUCI because we've got coming up in about two minutes uh, Matt Kaplan, and he'll be presenting to you his usual fare here for early Thursday evening, and that is Counterspin and Planetary Radio. All right, this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI.org. Robert Larson out the rabbit hole saying, I'll be talking to you next week.